This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse. On Triple R one oh two point seven FM. <laughs> what was that? Welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse 3, Triple R's proud parading of the creators of new and positive narratives and self-righteous finger-pointing at the old <laughs> crumbling pillars of industrial society. Tonight on Greening the Apocalypse, we will be following up on our recent chat with uh, Stephen Pepper, the retiree in the Welsh choir who created an off-grid home from a reclaimed school portable. Our conversation tonight, however, is strictly city-centric and we'll be chatting with Michael Mobbs. He's the author of the book Sustainable House uh, and for the last 20 years he has been a resident in a retrofitted 1890s inner Sydney terrace house. So for all you city dwellers and urbanites, uh, stay tuned. As always, co-conspirator and co-founder of the Permablitz movement, now celebrating its 10th birthday year, is Adam Grubb in the house. How are you, Grubby? Good, mate. I'm, I'm, uh, I've been getting into mysteries lately. Like, I've solved two mysteries. What it, mysteries? Did you find your uh, phone? I mean, was that was mis- a yeah, well, that's the thing. I was like, really? Um, yeah, I just lost my phone. <laughs> but I'm treating it as like an investigation now, just so I just don't feel uh, right like a loser about it. Tell us about your other mysteries. Uh, oh, there was the mystery of the anonymous cake in which there was a party <laughs> in which it was a closed room mystery. Uh, no one could come or go pretty much. It wasn't designed this way. It just happened and a cake appeared mm. in the fridge. Nobody owned up to making it. There were interrogations and <laughs> accusations. Um, the social fabric was ripped apart. And uh, I finally solved that mystery. Oh, like okay. that, a week Did later, you make it? A week, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> it took some tracking down. Yeah, I, I there's remember. been, mo- but yeah, I'm on a roll. I've, got, I've two in a row. I've got another one too. The mystery of the ugly cup, but I won't bore you with. When I think of mysteries and solving mysteries, I always think of the great uh, Columbo, and that always. I'm pretty the, much like Brunswick's Columbo. Have you got the cigar? And do you scratch your head and look at your notebook? This whole case has got me completely flummoxed. Yeah, yeah, I act dumb. I'm, <laughs> I'm just acting. Yeah, all the time knowing who the killer really is. Returning this week. Uh, to the co-host chair, the Belle of Glasgow, Kate Dundas. How art thou? I'm very well. Excellent. How's wee baby Tommy? He's so nice. Yeah, you were staying out in the kitchen. He wasn't <laughs> nice for a while. Yeah, he wasn't nice for a while, but he's back to being nice now. Uh, it was, it, it's not that he wasn't nice, because he's, you know, he's a baby, mm. but he was quite grumpy and quite sweaty and stuff. Oh, but now he's got... <laughs> he's just getting a tooth. Now he's got a tooth, he's really nice again. Sounds like a curmudgeonly <laughs> old man with his grumpy, sweaty, singular tooth. Oh. Does he sit up in the pews at a Muppets theatre show and complain <laughs> loudly? Yeah. This was terrible! <laughs> uh, and returning for his second week in the hot seat at the panel is Brendan Beeston. Hello, Brendan. Hello, Bushy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. You look nervous. Yeah, I'm nervous. um, We missed the first 20 seconds or so of the intro. With the button thingy? With the button thingy. So Jed told you, before you took over for Jed from two weeks, he told you about the punishment of the wet shoelace dipped (laughs) in sand. But where does that go? Well, well, you can be flayed with it or you can absorb it into your soul Mm. and everything in between. Mm. 
Hmm, but let's not discuss such horrendous... <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't know. Uh, it's just one of those nights I think I've had too much coffee. You mentioned Jed. Yes. And he's known amongst the cycling circle as the bike whisperer. Ooh. Indeed. Really? He makes bikes work. It doesn't surprise me he has other lives. I mean, he has. I think Jed has a lot of other lives. He's got many fingers. Mm-hmm. Multifaceted. <laughs> and lots of pies. <laughs> lots of pies. Lots of pies. Which is not to say, if you're listening tonight, you only have two or three fingers that you can't also have, have a rich and meaningful existence. But go on. Uh, what have we been looking at this week? Who would like to go first? Uh, I'll have a crack. Have a crack. <laughs> you know how you sent me so, a Friendly Geordies video during the week? Love Friendly Geordies. He's a great YouTube channel, for yep. those who don't know. And he's, uh, was taking the piss out of Balinese holidays. Yes. Oh. But he yeah. was very much taking aim at the Kuta end of the market, which yes. is the uh, bogany, um, yeah, hard-drinking... Mm. Um, yeah, so well, it's, it's ugly. He I mean, described it as if you're 18 and you've got a beer gut or you spend so much time in the gym that your parents are scared of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, it, uh, I've, I've been there and it's, he's, it's very accurate, yep. kind of scary, but I actually kind of found in a way the Ubud scene a little bit sort of closer to the bone and more insidious or something when you've got this transplanted so Ubud is up in the hills it's away from all that party action and it's where you wear flowing hemp fabrics and you do yoga uh, which isn't from Bali by the way and uh, (laughs) and you practice Buddhism instead of of the local uh, or what you know Hindi basically misappropriate as many people's cultures as you can in a two week stay And, and, and I've also been to Goa in India similar kind of vibe and it's hard to put a finger on because i actually find individually a lot of the people really nice um sometimes excessively nice so and and i you know there's a problem of like transplanting you know you do realize that these are especially in a you know former colonial country and it's just 100 percent white people Mm. with um with those uh, sticky things on their forehead what are they called Uh, bendies bendies yeah anyway so I was interested, this maybe, you know, helped explain what I struggle with this article, uh, Spiritual Bypassing, How Spirituality Has Sabotaged My Growth by this guy, Jonathan Tonio. Uh, And he talks about this thing, spiritual bypassing, a coin termed in the 1980s, which refers to the use of spiritual practices and beliefs to avoid dealing with uncomfortable feelings, unresolved wounds, and fundamental emotional and psychological needs. And... It's associated with uh, being angerphobic, having blind or overly tolerant compassion. Interesting. Uh, Weak or too porous boundaries, lopsided development, uh, debilitating judgment about one's negativity or shadow side, uh, devaluing of the personal relative to the spiritual and delusions of having arrived at a higher level of being. So this is just... People within the spirituality movement calling a set of character traits that they believe they've noticed. And uh, the writer of the article relates to it a lot. He says that personally, in the past, whenever he had done something hurtful or wrong to another person, he would rarely take responsibility for it. And he would deflect that responsibility by saying things like, that person just needs to grow spiritually or mm. it's just an illusion anyways. The universe will get him. In a naive tone, this is in his, yeah, in his voice, reminiscent of the time I thought I was a bona fide professor of quantum physics. So, 
Yep. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. So it's, yeah. yeah. Not, this is, incidentally, coming from people who are still pursuing spiritual goals, yep. and it seems like a healthy thing to hey, self-reflect what, what on. What is this. a spiritual so not, goal? I, well, I, when I, I, I can't really relate to the term person but what, like, that much. But what do but, they want... To, what what do they want to do? What are they trying to do? Oh, What's the not goal? Not the person to ask. Because with the Bali stuff, yeah, <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who kind of subscribe to the perfect life Instagram um, oh, inspirational so quotes. <laughs> I know it's so beautiful. Yeah, but you just feel spiritual. Like if you just yeah. But I'm I'm wondering what the article is actually saying. Whatever that means. Is it um, saying like that by pursuing some kind of spirituality that you don't really believe with, but you're trying to kind of mould your personality to say I should be acting in a certain way because that's how like uh, health bloggers would act or someone mm. else would act. Yeah. Well, look, obviously, you know, choosing to pursue things other than materialism is good. We're a show yeah. devoted to, you know, reducing our environmental impact and indeed regenerating things. And there has to be some element of looking inward and trying to find ways of being more at peace. If that's one of your goals, I don't personally have that as goal all the time. Mm. Anyway, surely <laughs> that... There is some good stuff to, if you want to use that word and look in that direction, but uh, some pitfalls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pitfalls lined with fake so by dreadlocks. Having, yeah, too much of a rigid set of like rules about how to act in a certain way, then you're not being true to yourself. Is that what it means? <sighs> Possibly. Maybe. I can break that down really soon. Oh, we were very lucky when we went to India years ago. Sammy was doing a, a, a course which meant that we were going to go to this ashram for 10 days down in uh, Kerala. And the guy who ran this ashram, and he'd spent like, the best part of 30 years working around the world and funneling money into making this ashram, and he was very well regarded as a, as a holy man and he had a lineage and all these fantastic things and he was revered. Like I'm saying, you know, people would walk hundreds of miles to touch his feet and that sort of stuff. And he sat with us and he sort of said, you know, the Westerners come here and they're all seeking enlightenment and let me tell you how easy it is. If you can sleep well and eat well and shit well, then you've obtained enlightenment. And he basically just broke it down to the fact that, you know, all these people come here looking for all this extra stuff, like they're looking for extra baggage to take away, albeit positive baggage. But he kind of said, at the end of the day, you just need to have your head and your heart and your body aligned right so that you sleep well, eat well and shit well. Hmm. I thought that was pretty cool. Speaking, I feel like I might have brought up a topic a little bit difficult to do justice to in three minutes. (laughs) That's okay. Um, well, we're talking healthy there, so I might just quickly seg into what I was spotted. I spotted an article in the conversation, and um, it was called "Do You Even Lift? Why Lifting Weights Is More Important for Your Health Than You Think." Now, before you think this is turning into a CrossFit um, yoga show, although why not? Might as well go there. This is basically an article to put this in context. Um, I was looking at lots of stuff a few years ago about transition towns and these different blogs and forums, and there. Yeah. And this guy had said that. One of the things he'd initially missed in trying to prepare himself for a future of, you know, um, you know energy descent and, and uncertainty, he had gotten his house retrofitted and done all this work to make his house efficient and he had his garden thriving in his community. He'd been building his community, been doing all this sort of stuff. But then he found himself uh, quite struck down very easily physically with ailments. So this guy had this little thing going where he'd um, started going to the gym and walking a lot and going running and he made sure that he'd do a, complete a Tough Mudder 
one of those sort of extreme. I think like you dive into puddles and electrocute yourself mm. on a marathon kind of dealio. So he got himself really, really fit. And in, uh, that sort of popped into my mind when I saw this article, and it just said, regular participation in muscle-strengthening activity, such as weight or resistance training, has many health benefits. However, this mode of exercise has been largely overlooked in Australian health promotion. Uh, our recent research shows a large majority of Australians do not engage in muscle-strengthening activity. Um, now, to cut time, I'll, I won't go into it too much, but it basically went on to say that um, it gives you the benefits of regular muscle-strengthening activity. Um, it talks about how most public health physical activity recommendations have predominantly promoted vigorous, intense aerobic ex- exercise, but the current Australian guidelines issued in 2014 are the first ones to additionally recommend any muscle-strengthening activity. There's lots and lots of benefits to having good, strong muscles, and there is many, many benefits to basically keeping good general health. And I would quickly touch on that and vouch for the fact that um, in this strange and confusing world, since I have actually focused far more the last four or five months on my physical fitness, which running and joining an old veterans football team and doing a bit of weight training, coupled with my regular daily work as a gardener and tradesman and and so forth, um, my mental health has not been better in quite some time. Still prone to fits of madness. I hope that doesn't affect the radio negatively. No, no, I don't think it will. No, sharper focus on the rant now. But also, um, I feel very, very fit and very, very healthy and very, very content. So I just thought I'd touch on that because from time to time we do get emails from people asking us various questions in relation to the show about what they think or we think about various things. And I just think at this stage in um, human history, maybe reverting our body back to some of the more physical stuff that we did for tens of thousands of years, in preparation for a time where we might have to return to those things, is no bad thing. And it will. It, there is actually no downside or no. there is no detriment that I've heard of to keeping reasonably fit. But if you go too hard, too fast, too soon, you'll probably hurt yourself. So mm-hmm. seek advice from someone who's not me. But um, I just thought I'd touch on that. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Having been very sedentary, apart from lifting the baby for months and months and months, and now I'm back commuting to work on the bike and much more active, feels so much better mentally, so mm. much better. It really makes a huge difference. Absolutely. And it's so easy to forget about it. And then when you start exercising again, you're like, oh, yeah, These this is muscles. much better. Yeah. <laughs> as part of that as well, that, um, you know, when you are bogged down in those first months of being a new parent, Mm. There's not a lot of time for your own headspace. That is very true. <laughs> yes, it is very true. What have you been looking at, Katie? So, um, I've got a uh, nice little article called, again from the conversation, called How Your Garden Could Help Stop Your City Flooding by Alessandro Osolo, Osola and Matthew Burns. Um, it's talking about what you can do to your own garden to alleviate the impacts of urban water. So urban flooding represents the most common yet severe environmental threat to cities and towns wor- worldwide um, through various urbanisation issues, lots and lots more concrete than we used to have. Mm. Um, in in even very dry years, the average amount of stormwater generated from a typical urban land parcel uh, in Australia is about 83,000 litres per year. And that's about 800 baths. 
I worked Jesus. out. Yes, it's a lot of water. Um, and when you think about all of the households that have gardens, so 83.5% of households in Australia, which is almost 7 million homes, have a garden. And that's compared with rough, roughly 52,000 recreational parks and reserves. Just puts into context how much potential green space exists in gardens as opposed to public land mm. or uh, at least recreation um, reserves and what we could do with those gardens to help alleviate urban flood issues. Uh, the death of the backyard is an issue. There's lots and lots of concretification happening, mm. lots of um, tarmac being laid, lots of massive houses on plots where there's only a metre around the edges. Yeah. So Which gets those, concreted. Which gets concreted. So in those types of poor planning outcomes, there's little we can do to restore and alleviate that kind of urban flooding issues. Um, but we can do little things to the garden, creating a water-sensitive garden and making your garden able to act like a sponge. So slow the water down through tree planting and other types of planting mm. and let it soak back into the soil rather than shimmy off the concrete really fast and go into the drains and make everything uh, flood and inefficient. Indeedy. That would be a really good thing to touch on in deeper detail. Um, in uh, Michael Mobbs, who we're going to be speaking to um, after this uh, first trip, He's been very adamant in his uh, redesign of his property that they don't let any stormwater or wastewater leave the site. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we get to that in the conversation. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. And Triple R is where you are. And on the line from Sydney, we have uh, author of a book which is uh, now approaching 20 years old. The book is Sustainable House, and it documents uh, the adventure of a family who are retrofitting a, a house in inner city Sydney to um, basically make it more environmentally sensitive. The name of that author is Michael Mobbs. Welcome to Triple R, Michael. Hey, good day there. How's things? Really good. Are you getting any rain coming off the ocean there up in Sydney? No, we've had uh, a lot of wind. Um, the batteries are three quarters charged, the tank's full, and I'm ready for whatever comes. Fantastic. <laughs> Uh, now, your book is um, it's sort of a maverick's tale. Back when you kick-started a renovation in 1996 uh, to create um, what was quickly coined the Sustainable House, um, you were probably one of the, well, probably one of the first people in Sydney in a city to do it. Um, could you sort of give us your backstory, like what motivated you to do it, where you were coming from with that move? It was essentially a childish thing. People, engineers in particular, said you couldn't do it. <laughs> Um, and more or less to show them that I could, I did it. Was, um, I'm very grateful to the engineers for saying couldn't do it, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. But basically I had um, two young kids. We needed a bigger kitchen and bathroom, and I didn't like the sound of my own voice. I was whinging about the government should do this, the government should do that. I thought, hang on, this electricity that I turn on when I turn the switch on, that's mine. This toilet waste that goes into the ocean that I swim in, the fish that I eat, eat or nurture, that's all mine. So I thought, why don't I stop all that when I um, make the kitchen and the bathroom bigger for the kids? And that's what I did. Yeah, right. So, I mean, we can, yeah, what, what was it? I mean, we could go down uh, the paths uh, bit by bit, uh, break it down into different areas of the house, what's worked well and and what sort of lessons you learnt along the way. Um, 
you know, you just spoke then about uh, you know elect- burning electricity, uh, burning coal for electricity, and um, water in and water out of the house. Maybe we touch on those points uh, first yeah. and what you've learned along yeah. the way. Yeah, I just want to say up front, I'm not special. I'm just doing in the city what farmers do in the country. There are two million Australians who drink rainwater every day, and no one dies. Um, so what I do is all the water. Uh, uh, it's about ten minutes walk from Central Railway, so it's right in the heart of the city. All the rainwater uh, is used to drink, cook, wash and shower. The sewage is recycled to flush the toilet, wash the clothes and hose the garden. I'm not connected to um, electricity. All the energy is from the sun and is stored in the batteries. I'm still connected to gas. And my plan is after I've been through this winter, and I have some confidence in the batteries, I'll disconnect for gas from gas and then I'll be home free. So basically, back then, my boy was six, my daughter was ten. I couldn't have said to the boy, oh, yeah, you can have your friends around the plane Nintendo, but they'll have to do a course first. So everything was really ordinary, and I'm a really ordinary person. You wouldn't want to live me, I can barely change a light bulb, and if I do, I talk about it for weeks. So it's really <laughs> stuff that you can get... <laughs> Yeah, because you can get local tradies to do. It's really simple stuff. Um, my wife said, look, if we do that, can we sell it? And she kept on saying that. So it's a really ordinary house to live in. So it's very, very... Re- yeah, it's a, I remember you were sort of mentioning throughout the book, uh, one of the, you know, as well as the environmental sensitivity side of the design, you were very keen to actually have a house that was as normal as possible and that if you decide to sell it, you know, wouldn't... Yeah wouldn't look like you were selling a circus. Yeah. I think it's really important. I think the idea of being green has been, how would you call it, it's not so much snooty. It's just people think it's complicated, but it's not. I'm, I'm really serious. I'm just doing what farmers do in the bush. So it's just a rain tank. It's just a recycling sewage system, very common, just batteries and solar panels, just that I've gone all the way. And the payback has been... Um, Four of us lived here um, before the kids left home for less than $300 a year for wow. energy and water. Mm. Yeah. So did, my son um, is Paul Tanner thinks now that I'm weird, and he, I think I would agree with him. And so he would um, um, have 20-minute showers um, and, you know, ignore me. Um, so there's no discipline around all that sort of stuff. It wasn't a place where people like to behave differently. And the, the good thing is that that water could come back to flush the toilet or to host the garden. So when you live like this, it's really connecting. You let go all that stuff about turning a light off and so on. I mean, you've still got to be reasonable, but it's really easy, this stuff. Hmm. So you mentioned water so far and the fact that it's oh this is adam by the way michael how are you yep. uh, hey adam the you mentioned the water's coming from water tanks and you're you're yep. pretty much off grid there um because you're also yep. recycling it um through the sewage system somehow i don't know how that yeah that works so could you fill the, us in uh, there yeah so all this all the um waste from the toilet the kitchen everything goes to a buried concrete three thousand litre tank and there's air blowing into it um, that helps create an environment, much like in our tummies where little critters live that eat, eat all the uh, waste. And when the toilet's flushed, it goes past um, a filter that takes 
over and colour out, and then there's an ultraviolet light that disinfects it so that it's sterile. Mm -hmm. So that goes round and round. The good thing about that is when you're recycling sewage, you don't need a big storage tank because when you flush the toilet, it's going back into the same place, so it's going round and round. Mm. Um, so that's only about um, the storage for the um, treated um, sewage is only about oh, hmm, maybe 200 litres, so yep. it's quite small. The um, rain tank is 10,000 litres and is about... It, the house is an old 1896 terrace, so the back garden has a 10,000 litre tank that basically goes from boundary to boundary. Um, it would have been a bad look to kill the kids, so there was no data on the long-term quality of stored water in Australian cities, our driest inhabited continent. So I measured the water in a monitoring program with New South Wales Health every two weeks for 18 months, and it turned out when we compared it, well, when the laboratory compared it with the um, mains water from Sydney Water in the lab, mine was uh, cleaner every time, which was a great relief, and then my son is... He survived. Taller than me. Yep. Yeah. Great. <laughs> <Pew>. <laughs> now, presumably, you also heat that same water. So, is, how's that done? Uh, there's a solar hot water that's pretty ordinary. Yep. But the new thing for me, I didn't put batteries in in 1996. I mean, back then, it was really unusual. I, I, I could see that the builders and the plumbers, it was a three month kitchen renovation when we did it. We did it as part of that. I could see when I came to site that they were both proud, but also they weren't quite sure about me. And now it's really ordinary. It's in building standards and so on across the country. But um, it, it's just really ordinary technology and just happens to be in a, in a city terrace. Mm. Uh, the other aspect on heating would be how you heat and cool the home. Do you want to tell us how that works? Yeah, oh, look, I have to make a confession. I have a fireplace. I have dreams of lying on a bare rug and you know naked and watching the flames think that I've yeah we all have that dream <laughs> <laughs> yeah but the body's not there anyway um um that's my sin and there is a gas heater and what i'm working on now is some form of heating that doesn't use gas when i disconnect probably around about september october yeah and so, so that will be using your electricity Will it? Yeah. Uh -huh. So as I speak to you now, the lights are on, yep. uh, which is a good thing. And that's all from wonderful energy that leaves the sun every seven minutes and arrives here. It's in a battery, um, uh, lithium-ion battery on my terrace um, balcony outside my first floor bedroom facing the street. It looks about the size of... Um, um, uh, a 500 litre fridge and that's the wonderful thing and I'm glad I waited because today's batteries are really you can program them whereas let us have batteries have you just can't really manipulate them so they've got intensively stored energy but it's very light it's about um, 380 kilos and if the same amount of energy was stored in the old let us have batteries it would be about one and a half tons and would go crashing through my balcony so that that's a really nice thing and that's got about 12 kilowatt hours of storage which is in this house about three days mm -hmm. energy use and um yeah the only thing to go now is gas is, is 
be, be honest, is the battery just about like getting completely off grid? Do you think it's the uh, for, is it for everybody to do that? Because obviously there's an environmental input and, and money input into cutting yourself off yeah. from the grid. Yeah, so, that's a great question. Thank you. I mean, everything comes down to money. Mm. Um, in 1996, when I did it, it cost me 48000 Um But it changed my life and I became much smarter. And now I can, and so I do this for a living, I can take a house mostly off grid for about 25,000 now. Mm. If you spend 20 to 25,000, you'll save two to 4,000 dollars a year in energy and water. Um, the batteries I bought in March last year cost me 17,000 dollars, but now they're down to about, um, I think they're about 13,000 now. Wow, in one year. And they're about, yeah, there's just, because there's about one point, am I going too fast? No, no, keep going. There's about 1.6 million houses with solar. So I, I was the first um, in a city to do it um, in '96. But now with those 1.6 million, the, the rate of reduction in batteries will be much faster than the rate of reduction in solar panels. So, for example, in 1996, my solar panels cost me $26,000. The same size system today costs about $3,000 and takes up about a third of the space. Mm. Um, the batteries that I bought last year were one of the first systems on the on the market. And now with the competition, the price is going to drop down because there's always 1.6 million people or households who will want to use the energy um, that they can store rather than putting it back in the grid and, grid and not being paid. Um, and you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. And Triple R is where you are. Greening the Apocalypse is the program you're tuned to. And on the phone from Sydney, we are speaking with Michael Mobbs, the maverick author of The Sustainable House. Hi, Michael. It's Kate here. Um, I'm interested, when you don't live on a block of land, but you live in an apartment, for example, what uh, possibilities are there for not necessarily going off-grid, but creating a greener living situation in an apartment? Um, This is my favourite question, so thank you for that. The answer is in two parts. Firstly, you could buy a water-efficient shower head, say 60 to 80 dollars and you'll save enough energy and water bills in three months to get that saving back so, and you can take the shower head with you when you move on so that's just really easy to do but i just want to talk about the same opportunity that's available to renters as to property owners after i did the house this is a long answer, sorry about that, but it's, it's a really important issue. I was being told by my little voice, you're not really sustainable, you're not really sustainable. And because I changed my life, I was designing buildings and offices and I wanted to get um, the job to build Google's new offices in, in Sydney. And I read into them and their 53rd employee was a chef who was passionate about local food. And I just 
discovered a, an amazing thing that the growing production, transport and waste of food in Australia is the second biggest creator of energy and water pollution after coal-fired power stations. So eating the typical Australian diet, uh, there's about 100,000 litres of water in your food in 10 days. That water-efficient showerhead that you buy in a four-person um, household or unit will save about 60,000 litres over the years. So just by buying local food and not eating red meat once a week, you can save yourself over $60,000 in a couple, uh, 60,000 litres of water in a couple of weeks. So I got that job for Google because that was their, their corporate value. They're passionate about supporting local farmers and buying fresh local food. So renters, just as um, people are in houses eat three times a day, just by buying from local markets, from local farmers, um, composting the food, you can do as much as somebody with a sustainable house and 20 to 40 times more because my, I'm sucking my tummy in now as I talk to you. My tummy <laughs> uses 20 to 40 times more energy and water than does the whole of my house. Yeah. Mm. Well, that that's is an huge excellent figures. point. <laughs> It's kind of frustrating, though, because we always talk about food on this show. We thought we'd get, get you on to cover something else. It's all about food. <laughs> but you're, 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 yeah, you're at least justifying us. How about <laughs> um, collaborating Sorry. with neighbours and um, with streets and suburbs? When you're planning, retrofitting uh, your house, what could you, if you, you were to scale it up um, well, to a yeah. suburb scale, for example, what yeah. are your thoughts on that? I, I think that's the way to go. I did a, um, a trial l last year. Instead of buying, say, just a solar panel or something like a rain tank for one house for yourself, if you buy with 10 or 20 other people, hey, you can, you can get a 15 um, or 10% or sometimes a 20% reduction in the individual price of those items. Last year we got, um, when I did this, about... 14 um, people and they got a 15% reduction in their solar systems so um, like there's, there's now um, blocks of units a whole range of different ways that you can put solar systems in that are coming in across Australia so buying in bulk is an obvious way to go, it's a bit more tedious because you've got meetings and all that sort of stuff but that's what's happening to get community power going to get the price of solar down and to, um, in a sense, give people ownership of the power. Some of those people who are putting in lo local solar power uh, stations are actually owning the power and selling it back. They're, you know, they're replacing the big energy companies. Early days, but it's happening. And you yourself are very active in your local community. You were kind enough to show me around some of the uh, community gardens out the front a few years ago, yeah. uh, taking over the very small nature strips in your inner city neighbourhood. Um, and you also have a project called the Street Coolers, which goes beyond the food. And yeah. would you like to tell us a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah. Uh, it was when I was um, taking up food that I saw a really, to me, shocking image taken between 1am and 5am on the 6th of February 
um, by a plane flying during those hours over Sydney, mapping the temperature of the land. In those midnight hours, the roads were over 33 degrees. Those black roads had caught the sun's heat during the day, held it, and were releasing it during the night. My place and others in the city here were no hotter than 29 degrees. So roads, black roads with no trees, are heating up our cities at nights and during the day by 6 to 10 degrees and killing people, killing birds in the in the Perth Plain in WA. All the ants have died in large parts of the plain because down there the soil is over 70 degrees. So... Oh. It's weird. We've got government rules about householders and officers trying to be more sustainable, to recycle timber, to use insulation. But out front, there are these cowboys who are going ahead in the way they did 50 years ago, building roads, cutting down trees, or building roads so that the trees can't get the water they need to go to their full canopy height, and heating up the local air so that people are forced to either turn on the aircon or the trees never reach their natural canopy height. So these people, it's like they live in another parallel universe and they just haven't caught up. So I've set up this um, not-for-profit research organisation to to work out ways to cool our streets by harvesting the stormwater, directing it to feed the roots of the trees and to work out affordable ways to change the colour of roads so instead of it's black it's a, a grey or white colour. Mm-hmm. And what else are you doing as part of the, the neighbourhood activities there? Uh, we're we're um, setting what we're moving to bit by bit is uh, a local solar power station. Mm. It's a bit a bit of a tough gig this. The, the, the things that we've built have to be rejigged and we don't have a lot of money and a lot of time. So what I'm trying to work out is a way to build that local solar power station over the road in a way that works for the property owners, the people who uh, manage the roads and the council. And because it's the first, it's taking a while, but it's a 10-year project, and I'm hoping that by 2020 we'll have worked out how to build solar panels over the roads um, we've built those solar panels. We've got data on how much cooler the roads are. We'll work out um, how to share the energy from that. So one of the things I'm really keen on is open source, sharing all the data. So on the website, streetcoolers.com.au, is all our research, all our legal advice about how to share, share, share power. So we're looking at... I mean, I'm just saying this. Um, we're not doing it like this. We're looking at just throwing lines across the fences between neighbours so those people who've got a tree and can't harvest um, solar power can actually Mm -hmm. buy and sell. And the legal issues about that are free to air on the website. People can see how to do that. Yep. Um, And, um, yeah. I've always thought in hilly suburbs you want to be getting your tank water from the the neighbour up the hill so it comes ready, charged and pressurised. Yeah. Water at height is gold because it's got that embodied energy. And um, it's really interesting in some countries, like in Singapore, where most of their water comes across the border from Malaysia, and Malaysia's been jacking up the prices. Singapore government's got quite grumpy about paying whatever 
Malaysia are. So they they do things like you're talking about. They they put um, uh, little uh, water uh, turbines into the stormwater and the sewage to generate electricity and to reuse the water and, st- and use the energy of the water. Mm-hmm. To, um, it's a it's really important to to reimagine the way we can use the power of water and harness it where it is. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and um, one of the things that's in this report, we've just given our um, second report to the state government to um, as part of the funding grant on street coolers. One of the things we've uh, identified is that um, over 500 billion litres of water flows from Sydney in, into the harbour and the ocean every year. And it's the same sort of figure for Melbourne. 500 billion litres is as much water as there is in Sydney Harbour. I, I just, wow. I think it's a crime to see all that stuff going down the gutter and not using the energy and not drinking it to feed the trees to mm. cool the streets. So we're looking at ways and trialling ways to do that in this project. Indeed. Michael, um, we're going to have to wrap it up, but listen, um, many of our listeners are inner city dwellers. They might be considering a renovation, a community activity such as you're participating in or just jigging up their rental property that they're currently residing in. Uh, Could you quickly touch on, um, in retrospect, after 20 years with uh, renovating and adjusting your house, what expertise was the most vital for you to explore? And uh, maybe just give us a few of the different websites and blogs that people can follow to get better details on your stuff. Yeah. Um, well, firstly, uh, there's the streetcourse.com.au. There's my own website where people can ask questions and um, I can answer them. Sustainablehouse.com.au. Um, there's a really terrific government website, energyrating.gov.au. It lists all the fridges, freezers, dishwashers, clothes washers, gives their 10-year energy running costs and where the country of manufacture. So if you want to buy a, um, an efficient fridge, often the most energy handling appliance because it's on 24-7. That's a great website. Um, and in in terms of what people can do, it's simple. Aside from the example of the the, um, the water-efficient showerhead, buying local food is so powerful. You don't see it, but if you can buy local fruit, local um, bread, um, local juice, stuff like that, not only supporting the farmers, but you're saving huge amounts of energy and water. And some of the data for that is um, in my in my book um, and on government websites about food. Um, just trying to think of the food website. Um, but basically, the, the thing that you, that's most powerful is this little voice inside you. You just have to have to open your heart up. Give yourself permission to do it. And don't beat yourself up for not doing everything. Be proud of what you do. And even if it's just buying a local potato instead of one from, you know, three states away or buying um, some local food, that's a really powerful thing that you're doing Hmm. every day. Indeed. Your new book covers that, Michael, and we'll be um, hoping to get you back on air in a couple of months' time. We thank you for your time this evening, Michael Mobbs. Thanks for being on Greeting the Apocalypse. Great to talk to you guys. Thank you. Good on you, mate. It's been great to see you, Katie Dundas. You'll be back next week. I will be. Adam, what are we talking about next week? Next week we're going to have a very famed author in the gardening scene, Jackie French, talking all things soils. 
awesomeness. We can't wait for that. Bushy's been my name. We'll see you next Tuesday, but until then, do have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.